This morning we talked about relative bodhicitta, meaning compassion and compassionate action. And the reason it's called relative because it deals with our relationship to each other as individual beings, really, with the concept of self and I and other. Absolute bodhicitta goes beyond this notion of self and other, goes beyond separation. Absolute bodhicitta means the free, open, empty nature of awareness itself. The open, empty nature of the mind. In Buddhism, there are many different names for this place of freedom, and the different traditions have different names for it. You could call it Buddha nature. You could call it the unborn, the pure heart, the Dharmakaya, the unconditioned. And so when you read in the various traditions, they all refer to it with these different names. Sometimes it's called the nature of mind, or mind essence. But it all refers to this open emptiness, or empty openness (laughs) of awareness. Different traditions in Buddhism point or emphasize different aspects of the experience of of this absolute bodhicitta. And so it's useful, again, not to see the different traditions as being polarized, or in some way in opposition, (coughs) but each one is pointing or emphasizing some particular quality of the nature of our own minds, the essential nature of our own minds. What I'd like to do is just read a few lines from each of a few traditions, which will point to some of these different aspects. As you listen to this, it's really important uh, to listen as a vehicle for looking in, looking within at one's own mind, because it's not about philosophy. As interesting as it is, philosophically, (laughs) that's of very limited value. The real interest and the power of all these teachings, and the power of the Buddhist teachings, is that it's all a direct pointing. And so when we listen, we need to, to really look at our minds, and it's already here, so it's not something, you know, that we don't have. Okay, so the first one, is from the Tibetan tradition of Mahamudra. And it's really pointing to the space-like nature of mind. It says, the essence of the mind is like space. Therefore, there is nothing it does not encompass. So when we look at our own minds, and maybe you had the sense when we were sitting and you were just listening to sound, the mind is like space, and the sounds are appearing and disappearing. And because of its space-like nature, there is nothing that it doesn't encompass. Space can hold anything. And in that way, we call this 
nature of mind or, unobs- or absolute bodhicitta, it's unobstructed because there's nothing between the mind and what's arising within it. Just as with space, it's completely unobstructed because it's not a material phenomenon. And so sounds arise, sensations arise, thoughts arise. It has this space-like nature. It's interesting though, even in a physical sense, how do we become aware of space? I mean, let's just take the space in the room. You know, if, if we have a, an instruction, okay, become aware of the space. <coughs> well, if we look too hard, we look right through the space to the things that right to form, right? The forms arising within it. And so it's not a question of looking for. Because if we're looking for it, we'll miss it. To really become aware of the space in the room. It's really a question of softening, settling back, allowing the perception of space to arise. Do you see the difference energetically? It's not not like going for it, it's just... It's almost like a receptive non-doing. And in that, we do become aware of space and we all know what the experience of it is. There's a new book out on the history of zero, which is a very interesting mathematical (coughs) concept and relatively recent, you know, in terms of the development of mathematics. Uh, Recent meaning, you know, quite a few centuries. Uh, But it came came much later on in other other elements of mathematical theory. So the the author of this book is Robert Kaplan. Um, And the, the book has a wonderful title, which is very relevant to absolute bodhicitta. The title of the book is The Nothing That Is. <laughs> and it really captures this empty space-like nature of the mind. There's nothing there, and yet it is. And one of the first uh, sentences in the book, he wrote, look at zero and you see nothing, but look through it and you see the world. So it's, it's a very good analogy. The zero-like quality of the mind. If we look for it, we see nothing, look through it, and the whole world is appearing. So again, it's a question of really looking within at one's own mind so that we begin to get some taste or glimpse of this. But this nature of mind, the essence of mind, absolute bodhicitta, is not limited to this space-like empty nature. There's another, we could say, attribute or quality, and that is the quality of innate wakefulness. And it's a wonderful phrase, it's one of my favorite 
in terms of understanding the nature of mind, that the very nature of mind is awareness. It's innately wakeful when it's not caught in delusion, when it's not contracted or constricted. So this is from the Theravada tradition, from the Thai monk uh, Buddhadasa, who was really quite a radical monk. He died recently, he died some few years ago. Uh, he had a very liberal, open understanding, you know, of, but very immersed in the Pali texts. So it's very, in one way, very traditional, but he had a very radical mind. And very interesting book he wrote, which, if you haven't seen, would be worth looking at, The Heartwood of the Bow Tree, because he talks a lot about the nature of emptiness. So he wrote, we should really call the mind emptiness, but because of the knowing faculty, we call it mind. Mm. So he's pointing in this way that the mind is empty, like space, like zero, the nothing that is. We should really call mind emptiness, but because of the knowing faculty, we call it mind. Mm. So this points to something really important to understand because I think there's potential for great confusion here. Understanding that the nature of the mind is this innate wakefulness or awareness, it reminds us that even though we use the analogy of space to describe the mind, the mind is not space. Space is a metaphor. Space is an image. Sometimes, though, when people are sitting and there is this experience of space-like emptiness, we interpret the space, we interpret space as being mind. Space is an image. The mind has space-like qualities, right? like it's empty, invisible, unobstructed, nothing there. But space doesn't know anything. Right? And so we don't want to confuse the metaphor for the actual experience of our own minds. It's space-like. This point is very critical for what we'll discuss a little later in terms of different ways the mind can get fixated. Understanding the innate wakefulness of mind, or the aware nature of mind, points to the meaning of words we find in a lot of the traditions and, in fact, it's in the title of the book that uh, I suggested reading for this time, Tracing Back the Radiance. Because in a lot of the traditions, there's talk of the mind being radiant, or the mind being luminous. And again, it's easy to misunderstand that and think that somehow 
there's this kind of light bulb glow, you know, and we, we take it to be light in some way. That's not what radiance and luminosity mean. They mean the knowing faculty, the cognizing faculty. That's what these words refer to. Because light itself, like space, is a physical phenomenon. And so it's a metaphor for this faculty of knowing, the faculty of awareness. That's what's luminous, that's what's meant by radiance. Okay, so we have two, two frames of reference for understanding the mind. One, it's empty, it's space-like, it has that openness of space. From the second side, there's the innate wakefulness, the cognizing faculty, the awareness. Another aspect, and this in some way is the good news for us, is that the nature of the mind <coughs> is inherently pure because of its space-like, empty luminosity, right? that knowing faculty. It's not stained. And so one of the examples is like, you know, if you throw paint into space, it doesn't land anyplace because there's nothing to hold it. In that way, the nature of the mind, because it's empty, even defilements arising in the mind, like greed or hatred or fear, they themselves are essentially empty. Because the very essence of mind is openness. There's no place for these to land. So from Shinul, who is you know, the author of Tracing Back the Radiance, and we'll be talking more about him this afternoon, he said, the nature of the mind is unstained. It is originally whole and complete in itself. So this is encouraging. <laughs> you know, that all of these teachings are pointing us back to the inherent, empty, pure nature of our own minds. And in the Pali text, the Buddha said the same thing. He said, the mind is inherently radiant and pure. Using the word radiant in just that way I mentioned. It's obscured, this purity and radiance is obscured by visiting defilements. The defilements come, they arise in the mind, so it's, and we often are living in them and living them out. But they are the visitors. They are arising out of particular conditions. The very nature of the mind is inherently radiant and pure. So when we look at our own minds, the nature of our minds, there's nothing to find. It's like zero. There's nothing there. Empty like space. But this space-like emptiness is wakeful. There's the innate wakefulness, the awake, the innate awareness. It's inherently pure, unstained. There's one phrase from Huang Po, one of the great Zen masters, just 
so often when I'm on a retreat it just kind of arrives in my mind and res- resonates. It talks of the nature of the mind as a wordless, stainless beauty. You know, and it just... But this is the nature of our own mind. You know, it's not something outside. The very nature of awareness. There's one other attribute. Beside the emptiness, beside the innate wakefulness, beside this inherent purity, that's pointed to in the Tibetan and Dzogchen traditions, uh, and it's expressed really beautifully uh, by one of the great monks of some centuries ago called Shabkar, in Shabkar, who wrote many things, or many books, of the flight of the Garuda and, and others. He's one of the the great expounders of the Dzogchen view. He said, mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. And so that last piece begins to bring in the union of emptiness and compassion. Remember, if we think of compassion as a verb, that's that quality of responsiveness. That's not simply a feeling. So when we really examine and investigate the very nature of the mind, the essence of the mind, it's intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, naturally wakeful, aware, ceaselessly responsive to what's arising, what's appearing. And so we begin to, and this comes back a little bit to the discussion with James and what he was bringing up uh, this morning, we start to see that compassion is the expression of emptiness. That it's not a stance of someone doing something. To the extent that we are you know, abiding in, resting in, open to the nature of awareness, the nature of mind, of realizing the selfless nature, it is ceaselessly responsive to conditions. And this is mm, this is where the whole movement becomes very spontaneous and very intuitive, because it's not coming from a place of self. It's not coming from an ego stance. It's the natural responsiveness of emptiness. I want to read just, there there are many, many stories of, you know, the great masters exhibiting this spontaneous responsiveness. So I'll I'll, I'll mention a few. Uh, This one is from the Zen poet monk uh, Ryokan, who it's totally wonderful, and his poetry is wonderful. You know, he lived basically a hermit life, and up in these 
you know, huts in the mountains of Japan, uh, very poor, and they had very little, very sort of open and responsive. It used to go and play with the village children. One of my favorite uh, Ryokan poems, not, not what I'm going to read, you know, when he came back to his hut and a thief had stolen those few things he had. And so, so he wrote this haiku, the moon at the window, the thief left it behind. <laughs> and I just think to myself, if I came back to my house and everything was stolen, the moon at the window, the thief left it behind. Unlikely. <laughs> Okay, so this is, this is from a book about the life of Ryokan called The Great Fool. Uh, so when the Zen master went out, the Ryokan, children would follow him. Sometimes they would shout at him loudly, and the master would shout back in surprise, throwing up his hands, reeling backward and almost losing his balance. Wherever the children found the master, they were always ready to do this. Ordinary people frowned on this behavior. My late father once questioned the master about it, and Ryokan laughed and told him, When the children surprise me this way, it makes them happy. When the children are happy, it makes me happy. The children are happy, and I'm happy too. Everyone is happy together, and so I do it all the time. <laughs> Nevertheless, at times Ryokan did become exhausted and would have to make his escape. The children liked to circle around him, clapping their hands and laughing with delight. When the teacher tires of this, he lies down and pretends to be dead. <laughs> then when the children are no longer hemming him, hemming him in, he slowly gets up and walks away. <laughs> it's just that wonderful spirit of spontaneity and responsiveness uh, that's very delightful. And I think, you know, most of us know kind of the really people we consider most enlightened or most free often exhibit this quality. So all of these descriptions, you know, from the Zen tradition, from the Pali text, from the Tibetan tradition, pointing to the nature of mind, its empty nature, its innate wakefulness, its inherent purity, its spontaneous responsiveness, they are all pointing to one experience. And the Buddha expressed it, as he usually does, exactly and precisely to the point. He said, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. That's the experience of this nature of mind. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. The Buddha went on to say, whoever has heard this has heard all the teachings. Mm -hmm. Whoever practices this has practiced all the teachings. Whoever realizes this has realized all the teachings. Mm -hmm. So in terms of what we need to practice, it's very clear, and again, this is not a philosophical statement, this is an instruction that the Buddha is giving us. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. 
So tomorrow during the day, I'd like to talk in some detail about all the things we do cling to. But just to stay on track this afternoon in terms of uh, investigating the meaning of absolute bodhicitta, this nature of mind, there's a very important distinction, and it's made a lot in the Tibetan tradition, between what they call mind and mind essence, or mind and nature of mind. When they say mind, they're talking about our usual, normal, fixated, clinging mind. You know, and we know, just going through the day, a good part of the time, our minds are just lost in thought or reaction or judgment or worry or fear or attachment or whatever, just kind of the normal everyday run, you know, of different things arising, us not being mindful, not being aware of them in the moment that they're arising, and so being lost in them. It's interesting, you know, as we begin to bring mindfulness to this process, to begin to feel all of those moments of being lost, of being caught, we can really feel it as a contraction. You know, we're going along, everything's going smoothly, and all of a sudden the mind is caught by something, you know, by a want and by a desire, by an aversion, by a judgment, whatever. In that moment, if we're paying attention, there's an energetic, you know, and we can feel it. I see a lot of practice. I was talking with Gina, with Gina about this last night. I see a lot of our practice, our understanding it as being an unwinding of these endless levels of contraction that we accumulate in the course of a day, a year, a lifetime, a millennium. <laughs> it's like unwinding it. Okay, so this is what's meant by mind. We could call it normal mind, as opposed to the nature of mind. The nature of the mind refers to what we've been talking about in terms of absolute bodhicitta. The nature of mind is this open, empty, unfixated, innate wakefulness, where there's no grasping, there's no identification, there's no delusion, there's no contraction around what's arising. <coughs> There's a very useful image that describes this difference between mind and nature of mind. And the example, the image that's used, is the difference between ice and water. And ice is frozen, it's reified, it's contracted, it's hard, it's rigid. The mind is in its ice state, in its contracted state, in any moment when we're taking the arising appearance to be I or mine. That's ice. Right? Because the mind is contracted, it's fixated on something. And it could be a sensation in the body, it could be a thought or emotion, it could be some situation around us. It's when we're lost in the movies of our minds. 
which is often. That's why it's our normal state, not our natural state. Sometimes, and again, just to kind of get a difference between the difference between ice and water in this regard. You know, when you go to the movies, I mean, mostly, we're really quite caught up and immersed in the story on the screen. That's why we're going to the movies. <laughs> but sometimes it's interesting, you know, to look up and see just the light beam going through the space, you know, before it hits the screen. And just the light passing through the film in, you know, kind of different color and you see the dust particles or whatever you see when you look up. And it's such an immediate lesson in reminding us nothing whatsoever is happening on the screen. <laughs> in terms of the story that we have been so lost in and so involved in and maybe emotionally engaged with, nothing is happening. And yet we pay to live in the illusion <laughs> that something is. To translate that into our lives, so one of my favorite stories of this difference between the mind being lost in the illusion and not, uh, the story around the last Karmapa's death. I mean, he's recently been in the news, the new one, you know, for having escaped from Tibet, uh, from Tibet into India. But as you probably know, you know, he died in this country some time ago, I guess 15 years ago. He was very sick, he had cancer. His body was not in a good way at all. All the disciples and his students were around him. And at that time, they were very caught up in the movie of his death you know, I'm very upset, and at one point he turned to them and he said, don't worry, nothing happens. <laughs> well, that's an amazing place of realization to come from. It's the place of realizing that nothing is going on from the perspective of absolute bodhicitta. It's just like the light beams. You know, and that even this momentous, probably the mo most momentous thing that we consider, birth and death, <coughs> on another level, on a more absolute level, is not happening. So ice represents the nature of the mind when it's fixated, when it's contracted, when it's holding to anything at all. And sometimes it's very gross levels of attachment fixation, sometimes it's extremely subtle levels. We don't even know that we're fixated. Water represents what we could call absolute bodhicitta, just the open, flowing, responsive nature of mind. So we're going from mind to nature of mind, or essence of mind. There's no holding, there's no clinging at anything. No identification with anything. 
Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. In those moments when the mind is released from any clinging, that's the nature of water. And it's a beautiful image. But just to say that even water is a little too solid of an image. You know, so remember that. Water is too much of a thing. But but there are qualities of water, just like there are qualities of space, which illuminate the fluid, open nature of the mind. And one of the things I read, I, I hope this is true because I really like the image. So, But it was describing water, going like from the mountain down to the ocean. And it said, as I read this anyway, it said that given the various topographies that the water crosses, it will always find the shortest route. You know, so even as it wanders and turns and whatever, given the topography, it's always the shortest route to the ocean. I'm not actually sure of the relevance of that. <laughs> I like the idea of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that somehow that, that the nature of mind, this fluid water-like nature, knows its way. If that's, you know, and it's learning to trust that quality of its openness. There's no holding and no clinging. And as I said, when we're with people who really are embodying this, it is so wonderful. Mm. I'll just tell one Dalai Lama story, which um, there's so many, he's such a good example of so many things. Uh, but uh, some years ago, Sharon and I were uh, at a Buddhist Christian conference at Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky, uh, which is where Thomas Merton uh, you know, lived and practiced and wrote. A big conference, and a lot of high church officials were there, and you know, bishops, and all the monks of the abbey. And of course, the Dalai Lama was a very, very honored visitor, and so the monks of the abbey are taking him around, showing him various things they do. And of course, for livelihood, what they do there is uh, they make cheese and fruitcake. Well, that's that's how they support themselves. So they're showing the Dalai Lama around. And then that night, His Holiness was giving the talk. And he gets up there and saying what a wonderful place it was and how grateful he was to be shown around. And then he goes on to say, but the monks kept offering me cheese and I wanted fruitcake. <laughs> <laughs> and he burst out laughing. <laughs> and then he'd go on again. <laughs> Wherever we went, they gave me cheese and I just wanted a piece of fruitcake. <laughs> <laughs> it was so completely delightful, you know, because he probably did want the fruitcake. <laughs> and it was just that transparency, you know, of not holding that. He was just sharing his mind without self-reference, with tremendous spontaneity. That's the nature of water, right, where it's not fixated, it's not contracted. This is the nature of our own mind. It's not just the Dalai Lama. And this is what we really have to learn and practice. It's not out there. 
this is the nature of mind. And so our practice is coming back to it. It's not something to get, it's something to come back to. Well, there's one great discovery in our practice, and that is that ice melted is none other than water. So it's not that it's two different things and somehow we're ice and we have to find water, which is often how we practice. You know, it's as if, okay, we're practicing and we know we're caught and we're looking for something. We're looking for some other state. It's not that. What we need to do is to unfreeze the ice, to let go of the grasping. In the letting go of the grasping, the nature of mind is already there. This water fluid, open-like, responsive nature. You know, there's uh, the story of uh, the monkey trap with the coconut. You know, it's coconut, and, and they hollow out a little. They hollow the coconut out and make a slit in the bottom, so the monkey slips its hand in. And they have to put some food in, and so the monkey grabs it, and they can't get out because it's stuck. All the monkey has to do is let go, and slip his hand out, and be free. But it's a really rare monkey that will do that, and it's exactly the same process. It's not that freedom is some other state, something different than where we are in the moment. It's exactly where we are in the moment when there's no clinging. So one of the uh, aphorisms of practice which has come to my mind, it doesn't matter to what we don't cling. <laughs> but it's really interesting just to watch ourselves in practice thinking I will practice to get a state which I won't cling to <laughs> why wait? <laughs> because the point is the not clinging it's not the state it doesn't matter to what we don't cling. <laughs> so might as well not cling right here, in this moment. And then with whatever is arising, it's a thought, it's a feeling, it's a reaction, whatever, that's our practice of coming back to the nature of mind, which is the mind that is not clinging to anything, not taking anything as I or mine. So a question then for us is how we do this. You know, how can we practice this? How can we live from this space? And we'll talk in more detail about that tomorrow. But this is where the book by Chanul, Tracing Back the Radiance, really offers a very interesting perspective on practice. 
It's one of my favorite Dharma books because I feel like it just brings together two essential pieces which are often separated. Uh, and he really holds them together. And if you've had a chance to look at it, some of the pages from it, you know that the basic framework of his teaching is sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. And that's a very interesting concept because often we have the idea, well, it's gradual awakening. We, we practice gradually and then at a certain point there's an awakening. Or there can be the notion of sudden awakening and the feeling, well, that's it. And nothing more to do. What Shinola is saying is that there is a way of understanding that awakens us suddenly to the nature of our own minds. So that becomes our starting place, not the, not the end place. But that, that's not enough. That we can have glimpses of the nature of mind, this open, empty, innate wakefulness. We can have a genuine, authentic glimpse of it. But that needs, that awakening, he calls it safeguarding the awakening. That that needs cultivation. <clears throat> Sudden awakening is the recognition of the nature of our own minds, seeing that the nature, this nature of mind is not some state. It's not a meditative state. And so it's not something we attain. It's not something constructed. It's not something developed. It is the very nature of mind. It, it's already here. And that phrase actually has been a very useful mantra for me. It's already here. Because in my practice, very often I would notice the tendency of the mind you know, in practicing to be practicing for something. You know, leaning forward for more calm, or more concentration, or more whatever. And then I would remind myself, it's already here. And I would feel, in that moment of using that mantra, I would feel the heart-mind relax. Instead of the grasping, the looking for something, it would relax back into its essential nature. It's already here. Because the potential for not clinging is always here. <laughs> but even as we practice in this way of sudden awakening to the nature of our minds, to this sort of nature of awareness, the empty, unconstructed, just the, the empty, cognizing quality. There's a phrase in the Dzogchen tradition which I found really helpful in this process, and that is, they call it clarifying the view, that is clarifying 
our understanding, clarifying our recognition of this, because it is extremely subtle. There have been many, many times when I have been sitting and feeling like I'm just resting in this open awareness, this empty, unconstructed awareness, and then at a certain point, quite spontaneously, I'll notice that my mind all of a sudden relaxes, opens, and I hadn't even known that it had been contracted. It had felt totally open. And it's only in retrospect, it's only when there was a further relaxation that I realized, oh, there was some identification with something. Right, some fixation on something that I had not even known was there. And so this is what's meant by clarifying the view. You know, one of the great, great teachers, masters of all time, uh, Padmasambhava, who brought Buddhism to Tibet, and some of the stories of his training with his teacher, you know, his teacher gave, gave him these instructions about the nature of the mind. He'd go off for a year and practice and he'd come back and describe this open, clear, empty, luminous space. And his teacher would say, not quite. <laughs> you know? and back for another year. <laughs> you know? And then again, he'd have another year and he would see you know, how he had been holding on. This, the sense of understanding that it is already here, and at the same time, that we need to keep clarifying our understanding of it because there may be holdings that we're not aware of and not only maybe, <laughs> most likely are. <laughs> Just as a few examples. You know, we might be in a state of great clarity, great openness and just the subtlest energy of trying to sustain it. That itself is a fixation. That that wanting to, or even holding it, is already something. Another example, this is uh, from a friend and student, uh, practiced for years, and she's done like 15 three-month courses, and you know, lots and lots of practices, incredible woman. She was at a, a retreat with Sokni Rinpoche, and she was describing this uh, state of tremendous spaciousness. You know, just space, space-like openness. And so she was asking whether, you know, that was that was really the experience of this nature of mind. And he gave such a good and clear answer. He said. Really, the nature of mind, it's not so much spaciousness as groundlessness. <coughs> because even spaciousness can become a fixation. It's like we're, we're holding the space. Groundlessness implies or suggests there's just nothing to hold on to at all. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Not even emptiness. <laughs> not space. 
T.S. Eliot, he, he had some beautiful lines about this. I don't know whether he was actually had the experience of nature of mind, but his lines are very appropriate. He said, a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. That's from the four quartets. And it's just so beautiful because it's so... A condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. There it is. Or isn't. Okay, so just maybe end with what will lead into tomorrow's discussion. Understanding this difference between mind and nature of mind. Understanding that we practice this moment of recognition of the nature of mind, this open, empty, innate wakefulness that we need to keep clarifying this view, you know, so that sort of the hidden aspects of our fixation or contraction we let go of. And then, as I mentioned a bit earlier, Chanul takes it one step further, where he emphasizes the importance of the gradual cultivation, even when the recognition is authentic. Even when there has been a genuine, sudden awakening to the nature of our mind, that by itself is not enough. It needs the gradual cultivation of that recognition. I'll just close with some lines from Chanul of why it's so important. And then Although the person who has suddenly awakened is the same as the Buddha, the habit energies which have built up over many lives are deep-rooted. This is the key point. Even though we awaken to the nature of mind, the habit energies which have built up are very deep-rooted. The wind ceases, but the waves still surge. And then he's quoting another, another master. He says, often gifted people can break through this affair, through the normal mind, and achieve sudden awakening without expending a lot of strength. Then they relax and do not try to counteract the habit energies and deluded thoughts. Finally, after the passage of many days and months, they simply wander on as before and are unable to avoid samsara. So how could you neglect subsequent cultivation simply because of one moment of awakening? After awakening, you must be constantly on your guard. If deluded thoughts suddenly appear, do not follow them. Reduce them and reduce them again until you reach the unconditioned. Then and only then will your practice reach completion. So this balance, and we'll, we'll explore it further, you know, the moment of, of recognition, of sudden awakening, and then realizing the importance of the gradual cultivation, that really brings 
a fullness and a completion to our spiritual journey. So, why don't we take maybe ten, it's ten after four now, take a ten minute stretch or so, ten, fifteen minutes, and we can come and just have some discussion or questions or comments about this. two-part question. The first on the nature of mind. Is the nature of mind something that has existed regardless of anything else ever, forever, across the board, simply is? And the second... (laughs) (laughs) And the second is... place of gratitude in relationship to the nature of mind because as you talked about pitfalls and kind of solidifying concepts and so forth sometimes I think I err in um, a kind of intense appreciation for for the nature of mind as it manifests itself in this way in this beautiful existence we're in and and that gratitude sort of solidifies mm-hmm. that image. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see what I'm saying mm-hmm. here? I think so. so. So those are my two questions. Yeah. I mean, it's really the, the first part is, which bears on the second. It's an extremely subtle point because And it goes back to that book title with it's the nothing that is mm-hmm. right and but nothing does not mean it had all the qualities which I meant the innate wakefulness and the responsiveness <coughs> the danger that is pointed to again and again at least within the Buddhist tradition you know and other spiritual traditions may have a different take on this uh, is not is to be careful about not reifying that in any way. And this is where the great subtlety is, and it, it really goes beyond language. Because, and again, I, I just want to reiterate and encourage, it's really about looking within. 
not about a belief system. Mm-hmm. So, for example, when when I am practicing and really as much as possible, I don't know if it's exactly the right language here, looking, recognizing, whatever, the nature of mind at whatever level or degree, Even, even the, the question, okay, is awareness present in that moment, is it not present? It's almost like it just goes beyond mm-hmm. all of it. The, the, the two, I mean, it's... Yeah, you, you just can't really <coughs> say anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's, <laughs> I think one wants to be a little careful that, I mean, that could be heard as a kind of cop-out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but it's not, because it just is beyond... It's beyond reification in any way. You know? So I, what I would suggest is not so much examine. I would make your practice looking in your own experience at ways the mind is reifying mm-hmm. this empty mm-hmm. wakefulness. Or not, you know, and, and to really begin to get a sense of the difference. I mean, you very likely have experiences of both. When it is fixing it in some way, and when it's just open. just totally open, where you really can't say anything. Mm-hmm. That points to the difference when you speak of the gratitude. Then that's the difference between the gratitude itself reifying a sense of self Mm -hmm. or whether gratitude is a spontaneous empty arising selfless arising where the gratitude itself is not self it's just part of the responsiveness like Rio Khan playing with the children sort of a recognition of self I mean it's a bit what it feels like gratitude is a is a recognition of what is of 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 the the mind the nature of mind. Right. It's a if the gratitude is arising and there's no claiming of the gratitude. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then then I think it's just part of this spontaneous responsiveness mm-hmm. and it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. So in Zotan a lot of these qualities of devotion, of gratitude, of compassion, they're called adornments. Mm-hmm. Like in, in that tradition they say adornments of Rigpa, you know, adorn. Mm-hmm. But the non-reification of anything is the key point. Otherwise, even in these subtle ways, it becomes ice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So, so all of this, I think, is a question really points to that whole process of clarifying the view. Mm-hmm. That's an ongoing process of on more and more subtle levels freeing the mind from any identification with anything. Mm-hmm. And in that it allows all of this to arise. Mm-hmm. Would you use uh, selflessness interchangeably with emptiness? 
Yeah, they they're. Um, it's like it's put the, those words are pointing to different attributes, but really what emptiness means is empty of any inherent self-existence. Right. So that's why I'm, and that's why the, that word in our Western culture, in some ways. <coughs> It can be misleading because we have other connotations for, for emptiness mm -hmm. and often people, well, it's just, doesn't sound very appealing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but that's not, the, that's not, I mean, maybe a better word would be openness. You know, mm -hmm. space-like openness. If I listen to you, there was a point where you referred to the relaxation of the mind. And I find if I listen to you, there is a place in my being that lets go. Mm -hmm. And Chanel talks about, you know, being guarded about your fixation. But then I'm also... No, go ahead. <laughs> you got it. Yeah. The part of it where I cultivate that recognition. Would you speak to that, or will you be, and the ways of our cultivating that clarifying of the view? The places, yeah. it's almost like sometimes if I go to any way that I can find to sort of turn my mind upside down, where it will let go. Uh, that's really manipulating it. But I really, there's a place in my being that wants to go there. Mm -hmm. And I get a very visceral sense of that when I... Mm -hmm. yeah. um, <coughs> well, Paul, when I nodded, even as I was reading it, I, I didn't really like the translation. That, whether he actually said this or not, I don't know, but at least in translation, for me and probably for us, guarded, I didn't like the word guarded, because it's a little too much, a little too dualistic in a way, or just tightening. On the one side. On the other side, and what you're pointing to is that there is a need for practice. Because just as he said, if, if we just have this moment of recognition and then go on our merry way, all the habit energies, which are very deep, they just, they just recondition the mind and we forget. Yeah. E even when there has been a moment, we're not living it. It becomes a memory. Mm -hmm. And so that's not really transforming. And so then the question really becomes, and this is what Chanel talks a lot about, and we'll, we'll go into some detail tomorrow. How can we practice, we might think here of relative and absolute again, how can we do relative practices with the understanding of the absolute? Because then we're doing them, they need to be done. Otherwise we just fall back into old habit patterns. But instead of doing them from the place of I need to get someplace, we're doing them from the place of understanding the more absolute view that those practices themselves are part of the empty phenomenon. So this is, this is, 
the union of these two levels, and it's very. Uh, mm. So it's taking the separation out. Yes, yes, exactly. And all the traditions, I mean, even in the most non-dual traditions in Buddhism, all have the emphasis on relative practices. You know, big, for just the reason Shinoa mentions. Padmasambhava, he expressed it really beautifully, he said, though my vision is as vast as the sky, my attention to the law of karma, to cause and effect, is as fine as a grain of barley flour. You know, so here's this great master, you know, the most expansive, open understanding, and at the same time, now it's not apart from that, the attention to cause and effect of our actions, it's that meticulous. And it's very easy to fall on one side or the other. You know, where we get totally caught up in the relative practice, and it's really reinforcing in some way a sense of self, mm-hmm. or we can get attached to this view of emptiness. Oh yeah, I've realized nature of mind, nothing to do. And that's just another attachment too, which is, becomes delusion. Thinking of the thinking of the conditioned mind or a mind that can be conditioned, that has the ability to be conditioned, there's almost a it's considered a limitation, and you, if you will, a, a state that we really don't want to be in somewhere. And yet, if it arises from the unconditioned space. Or does it perhaps imply some kind of limitation of the unconditioned space that this conditioned space could then be possible? So I wonder if my icy conditioned mind isn't just perfect the way it is. Um, I mean, it's not necessarily something I'm comfortable with and want to stay in, but nonetheless, raises this question for me. I mean, it's not the first time that question has been raised <laughs> in many spiritual traditions. Uh, you were casting in kind of <coughs> Buddhist language. In my mind, it's going up two directions. On one level, the Buddha was really pragmatic and when he was asked what he taught, he said he teaches just one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. So on one level, that's the answer to your question. I understand that, and there's another question, maybe it's just the mind doing what the mind does that wants to know, well, 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 why? Well, I, I mean, I think question of why that in the way the Buddha responded, you know, 
that's a question that doesn't tend to edification. In, in terms of original, you know, what's the beginning of all this? How did it first happen? He said, that's not a question that is really helpful. First of all, perhaps last of all, my new favorite mantra is, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so maybe maybe the Buddha knew why, but I mean when we're looking, when we're trying to answer that question of original I mean people can have all sorts of opinions and do. But who really knows? I think the more interesting question and the more relevant question is in the moment. Now what is the nature of the mind? What is the cause of suffering? What is the possibility of freedom? And in answering that in the moment, we actually address those questions you ask, which is the understanding, and again, this is that relative absolute, that the nature of all the defilements is anything. And so it's true on one level that everything is perfect just as it is. Nothing needs to be done on that level. The problem is that we're not living mostly from that understanding. If we were, then it would be no problem. But we're not. Mostly we are caught in the relative level and therefore suffer. And so then you can see all of the teachings as expedient means, as skillful means to come back to the recognition that it is all empty. Because the delusion is the forgetting of that. So, I mean, I think what you were pointing to is a very important recognition. Yes, it is. It's like the, it's like the movie projected on the screen. None of that's really happening. It's all fine. Even the momentous questions of birth and death and all of it. It's all a play of light, as a metaphor. The problem is that we are not living in the realization of that. And so we need all the relative means to awaken to that. To free the mind from the grasping and the clinging and the fixation on things that are essentially empty. <laughs> and that's why it's so, I mean, practice can get so A lot. <laughs> I mean, in a way, so absurd. There's a great line from Mark Twain. He said, many great lines. He said, some of the worst things in my life never happened. <laughs> and that's that, that, even on the most, the most mundane level, that's true. Now, how much of our time is spent in imagining worrying about things that never happened. <laughs> as well as the more profound levels. So it's as if, since we're, we're given this human form, and just part of the package is that the mind goes round and round in circles, the body can get ill, 
all sorts of contractions, if you will, and that's just part of the deal, and I suppose that's going to be that way even with the most vast expanse of awareness. Um, you know, even saints got sick. Sure, absolutely. I mean, the nature of the body is what it is. But the question is, are we taking this body to be self? Uh, and we do. I mean, we're, we're quite identified with the body, but... And this is kind of the radical nature of the Buddha's instruction. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I am mine. It's all the interplay, it's the dance of elements. And none of them belong to anybody. It's not that there's a self to whom they belong. What we're calling self, or what we're taking to be self, is this, is this dance. And through practice we get, I mean, this is not, this understanding is not beyond our reach. You know, through practice we really begin to first glimpse it and then, to a large extent, really experience it at some, some real depth. And then we get to an edge. And, you know, we, talk, we were talking about, we get to an edge where, okay, I can be open and dancing with this much, but not with this. All of a sudden things have become very, that is a wonderful place to practice. You know, and I think this, and again, we'll talk more tomorrow, but the places of contraction are exactly the places we need to be practicing. But it's easy, so what? <laughs> we really want to be exploring those edges. It's very inspiring to think of it in that way, but for me, I, it's like I, I think I mentioned this morning, you know, I just see the mind, it's okay, this is this much is okay, and then we're at an edge, and that's get a little tight, but then we relax behind that, this, this, this. And the imagination, my imagination of the Buddha mind is just no edges. I mean, what a fantastically wonderful space that would be. When nothing is held on to as being sound. So this is our practice, you know, <coughs> step by step, edge by edge. I've been trying to practice um, specifically around an edge, and, and that edge is um, uh, identification with the self, not, not, I haven't been focusing on the bodily self, but <coughs> more on the self as um, an image, a name, etc. Um, but I haven't found really a way, this is very, very much on the relative level, a practice on that. So I started to practice on um, the depth and, and specifically the imagination, very, very um, prosaic imagination of my own devil um, as a way to mm -hmm. begin to, to do this. And it's, it's really, I mean, it's been pretty interesting. I don't know if it's helpful or not, whether I'm getting to the, whether I'm getting there, wherever there is. Um, but it's interesting that in that practice, the actual imagining of the death, it seems like I can imagine that for maybe five minutes, and then I just don't want to be there anymore. And um, it feels like that's some sort of an edge. 
and I'm just sort of wondering prescriptively what you would suggest, whether this is even a skillful way to go about what I'm trying to mm. go about. Um, I think it's really skillful. I'm where do you go from there that I can't stand more than five minutes of my death? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would first say maybe that's enough. <laughs> now, but I think at least in those five minutes I would begin to investigate what is it in that imagined experience that you can no longer stand? I mean, what aspect? Really ask that question. Yeah, because is it... I mean, it could be so many things. It could be fear of what the body will go through. It could be aversion to the loss of everything you know. It could be, I mean, it could be anything. So that would be the place of releasing once you actually recognize that and then practicing the acceptance of that. But until you see it clearly, it, it's, it's hard to come to the place of acceptance. Mm-hmm. I think there was one, there was one practice. I mean, there, there are many. Reflection on death is, is a major uh, piece of the Buddhist teaching. It's very powerful. It's such a good reminder that everything we're taking to be so important is really very transitory. My mind just went, just took a little trip to the year 1000. <laughs> I was just, with all this millennial stuff, you know, both in good ways and, and not so good ways. But I was, I have been reflecting during this time of when we think back to the people who live at the year 1000. I don't know, my thought around that is, why did, they, why did they make such a fuss? You know, it's just the year 1000. <laughs> From this perspective, that doesn't seem that <laughs> that important, knowing, you know, so then, well, why did we do it around this year? Somehow that's connected to... <laughs> <laughs> There's one, one practice on the reflection on death where this was one teacher's... We had all the students every day uh, dig a spoonful of their grave. Mm-hmm. Just as a reminder. Mm-hmm. What's so what's so kind of strange in a way is that this is so uh, at odds with our cultural you know, where you don't talk about that and you don't think about it and it's morbid and it's such a sort of immature <coughs> attitude. You know, because it's so honestly part of things. What's the thing about death that I, I can't ever understand that in many cultures is, uh, maybe it's something really obvious everyone understands, but I just don't see. When people talk about how brave that person was, how they gave such a good fight. And mm-hmm. I do the exercise, this exercise as well. I don't fight. Mm-hmm. I don't feel, and I'm wondering if I'm a coward. Because I'm not brave, I don't, and and then I take on the on the um, relatives, you know, like if there were disaster, 
I think the big earthquake in San Francisco, truly, I was a, you know, I don't know, not an earthquake story, but as I was walking down the stairs, there was the electricity all up. What was coming out was rock and roll. <laughs> it was a thrill. In a, but I was, that was before I realized that, <laughs> what happened. What happened. Um, so I don't, what about this fighting for oh. your life? I don't, I don't understand it. And maybe there's something I'm missing. And I guess I'm asking on a day to day basis, because in the same way our body isn't really our body, but we care for the mm -hmm. body because it's our responsibility. Right, right, right. And then that line, mm -hmm. it's your moment. Do you fight for right. I would separate out a few different things here. One is I would be very cautious about that the language of bravery and fighting because just that way which is in the culture. Yeah, that's yeah, but it's very John Wayne. <laughs> you know, I don't think that's really the vocabulary that's appropriate, even though mm -hmm. it's our oh, cultural yeah. vocabulary. Yeah. But if we use that vocabulary, it creates, I think, certain misperceptions. Okay, so leaving that vocabulary aside, a few things come to mind to say. One is, and I think we all know this, uh, that we really can't prescribe for anybody else how they should do it. Because everybody comes to that edge just with different backgrounds, with different understanding, with different aspirations, with different desires. And so there'll be a wide range of response. So this is just in terms of <coughs> being with other people. You know, I, my sense is that we can be present for them and yeah, I, but basically honoring of how people choose to do it. Just that being said, I think it is much more sort of our response at that time, and I think we're all in this in the space of really not knowing how we'll be. You know, it's till you till you're in the moment. Who knows? But they, they use the term clinging as much as fighting. I think. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I know I have the same reaction when I hear fighting, but clinging I understand. I <coughs> I, oh, think that, uh, I do cling from now and again. Occasionally. Yeah. Occasionally. So I can understand someone clinging to life. Yeah. I, I mean, would probably, today, would cling to life also. I'm not knowing uh, non life. I would imagine, and, and again, I'm, I don't feel like a particular expert in this. So. <laughs> But I could imagine that just as in that distinction you made between when the body's sick, just you take care of it, that that can be done without cleaning. That can be done really from a place of responsibility, of compassion, of understanding. It doesn't have to be the contraction. I could imagine 
sort of being very ill, but somehow feeling that intuitive understanding, this is not the time. Mm-hmm. You know, and putting energy mm-hmm. into healing. Mm-hmm. That, that seems completely appropriate. Mm-hmm. And at other times I could imagine, you know, you said somehow, you know, okay, it's time. And, and then really accepting it. I remember Rick Field saying that death wasn't the enemy, it was the, the, the illness that right. was. And I can imagine if you had young children and you had cancer, you'd make very different decisions than if you were 80 years old and something popped up and all your children were grown off. And I would call that fighting for your life. But again, even that mm-hmm. I think comes back to motivation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And someone very close to me uh, said that she realized that this was the time, so she uh, accepted that. And she said I was very surprised when it wasn't. It truly, a few moments later, she said I opened my eyes and I... <laughs> she had always imagined that moment of, not, I, I, you know, the word is surrender, I guess, or, or the acceptedness. Amazed, but it didn't work. <laughs> and also, I think it's, it's to remember that how we are will reflect our own level of understanding. You know, it's like, come out to say nothing happens. From that level, it doesn't make much difference. But we may not be in that. <laughs> um, there was a time when there was a rage among meditators in Houston, where I was living, um, to do something that monks were, were, were being taught to do, that there was this ritual that took some length of time um, a year or something, uh, to meditate on removing all the fluids in the body and then removing all the different parts of the body. And it was a way of supposedly... Um, no, in one's, in one's imagination. Exactly. Well, not exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is it related well, to the 28 body parts? I think possibly. What do you know about that? Uh, well, it's, it's just dividing the body into all of, I mean, mm-hmm. one model of dividing it into all of its components. Mm-hmm. And just examining each one separately and saying, am I there? Yeah. No, that, yeah, that's different. The, the reflection on the 32 parts of the body is a traditional uh-huh. way you do just that. But that, that's kind of a little different than... Yeah. Yeah. How come you have 32? Word is a problematic word, love, 
but experience that I've had of it almost being like a balance of the um, divine abode simply arising in that place. Um, and not really feeling separate from that mm-hmm. either. That's, uh, I didn't go into it a lot, but all of that is really included in that aspect of responsiveness. Mm-hmm. Infinitely empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. Mm-hmm. And I, I really appreciate that way of expressing it because in a way it unreifies love. Mm-hmm. I mean, so many people I, have come and spoken to me about how they feel that they're not loving enough, or they don't have enough love, or because there's some idea, some reification of love as something that we can have. Or, and I see it much more as the responsiveness, kind of the, the unencumbered responsiveness. And so all of those, like, like love and compassion and the sympathetic joy, are just part of that. And the more the self is out of the way, the more they flow. Maybe tomorrow we can get into this a little bit, but a question... I mean, compassion is often talked about as being a quality of the nature of mind love and compassion. So, the question that has come up with people, well, why is love and compassion? Why is an aversion? Why a privileged position mm-hmm. for love and compassion? So we can, we can go into that tomorrow a little bit. I want to sit for just a few minutes as a way. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.